You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, today we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter two, so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to 1 Timothy chapter two. As we continue this series that I've titled God's, uh, sorry, Gospel Culture in God's Household. Today in our series, we come to one of the most controversial texts in the entire New Testament. This text has divided churches. It has split entire denominations. It seems to have attracted more academic attention and scholarship than any other passage in the Bible in the last 50 years. This text has been rejected by some professing believers, it has been embraced by others, and it has been explained away by many. And the question it seeks to address and answer is whether women can serve as pastors. Now, if you're a member of our church or if you've been with our church for the last while, you'll know where we stand on this issue. But for those who are newer to our church, I'm not gonna leave you in suspense. I'm gonna tell you where we stand as a church up front, where we stand and where our family of churches stands, stands. And that is we hold to the plain, historic interpretation of these verses, that God has reserved the pastoral office for men. And kids, when I use the word office, pastoral office, I'm not talking about a physical space. You know, my pastor's office over there. uh, We are talking about the pastoral position. God has created an office that he fills with qualified men to serve for the good of the church. Now, I recognize that this may cause offense to some of you today. If you are a Christian and you disagree with what I'm about to say, I want to remind you that we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a salvation issue. It is an important issue, and it may affect whether you see yourself long-term being part of our church, but it is a secondary issue, not a primary issue. We are still on the same team. For those who are not Christians, I uh, want to prepare you. Um, You are probably gonna hear things today that seem archaic and... uh, it is certainly countercultural, but I invite you to give it a chance. Our desire as a church is never to cause offense. Instead, it is simply to know and to do God's will. We want to do that humbly with an awareness of our own sinfulness, our own limitations, and we want to do that lovingly with a desire to help others to know and to embrace God's will. And that's how I want to try to approach these verses this morning. We, we wanna approach them with a desire to learn God's will for his church. I've titled this series, Gospel Culture in God's Household for a reason. That's how Timothy describes the church. It is God's household. The church is a family but it is not a family that belongs to us. It is a family that belongs to God. God is the head of this home. 
And if you're a Christian, if you're united to Christ by faith, you are one of God's children. All of us who profess faith in Christ are God's children. And our role as the children of God is to learn to joyfully and willingly submit to his loving authority. Now, if you've studied religion in university, uh, you'll know that social science claims that the church is merely a product of social and cultural evolution that has taken place over the span of thousands of years. If that were true, then we could change the church into whatever we want. It would merely be the next stage in the evolution of the church. If it was created by humanity, it could be changed by humanity. But the Bible teaches that the church does not originate in the minds of men. It originates from the mind of God himself. Christ is the head of the church, and he reigns over us as our Lord. And as our Lord, it is his exclusive right to establish the doctrine, culture, and offices of the church. And if you have any knowledge of God, if you have studied the scriptures and immersed yourself in the word of God and and seen and experienced the heart of God, you'll know that God's will isn't arbitrary. God does not rule in a capricious manner. He is not selfish as he creates boundaries and issues commands. They are not God's way of holding humanity back from reaching its full potential. If you've read Genesis chapter three and the origins of sin, you'll know that that was the lie that Eve believed in the garden. And the truth that combats, that pushes back against the lie is that everything that God does is for his glory and for our everlasting joy. And that includes his boundaries and commands. He tells us what we can do and what we can't do so that we can experience the fullness of life as he has designed it. So with that said, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen as I read the word of God, starting in 1 Timothy chapter two, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The title of this sermon is Women and the Pastoral Office. We're gonna break up our text today into three points. First, what is permitted, verse 11. Second, what is prohibited, verse 12. And third, the reason for the prohibition, verses 13 to 15. Let's begin with what is permitted. Now, if you've been here over the last couple Sundays, you'll know a little bit about the context. Paul is giving young Timothy instructions on how to put the church in order. Chapter one addressed the importance of sound doctrine as Paul reminded and exhorted Timothy to address false teaching. And the reason why this mattered so much to Paul, 
The reason why it was so urgent to him was that without sound doctrine, you won't have a healthy church. It was the loving character of the church that was at stake in the addressing of sound doctrine. Paul's aim in guarding sound doctrine was so that love for God and love for neighbor would flourish within and overflowing out of the church. Then in chapter two, Paul moves on to his next area of concern when it comes to laying the building blocks for a healthy church. And that next building block was, of course, prayer. He says, first of all, I urge that you would pray for all people. Pray for all people. No one should be outside the jurisdiction and scope of your prayer life. Not your neighbors, not your coworkers, not those people who may seem to oppose you and don't have your best will in mind. We are to pray for all people and that includes the governing authorities. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions for the sake of our gospel witness. If people are to be saved, we must pray. And if God is to use our church to lead people to salvation, we must pray. Paul then transitions to address the unique obstacles to prayer that face men and women. For men, he said, the main obstacle to prayer is anger and quarreling. It's continued conflict with those around them. You can't have a healthy prayer life if you don't have healthy relationships with those around you. Likewise, women must not be characterized by an obsession over their appearance, but rather by a commitment to good works, including the good work of praying for others. And that leads to our text today. If we keep this context in mind, we see that Paul's not writing with an agenda against women. Instead, he's writing with an agenda for the church. He's not doing something that is unloving. On the contrary, all that he is trying to do is meant to promote the loving character of the church so that many would be saved. But before we even get to what Paul prohibits in verse 12, we must not miss what Paul permits in verse 11. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, it's very easy for us to take this verse for granted today, but when we understand the cultural historic context of the time, this was a radical statement because in first century Rome, in the typical cities, including the city of Ephesus, which was where Timothy was leading a new church plant, education was not a priority for women. Women weren't expected to think for themselves. Even their religious convictions, what they believed about God, about uh, the spiritual dimensions of life, they were meant to be subject to the views of their husbands. They were meant to push aside their own views and opinions and submit themselves totally to their husbands. But the New Testament offers something radically different. Yes, it upholds a husband's authority in marriage, but it made that authority subject to God's authority. We've thought often about this verse. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And that applies not only in how government treats its citizens, but in how husbands relate to their wives. We must obey God rather than men. When men forbid what God requires 
or require what God forbids. So if an unbelieving husband told his, unbe- told his believing wife to follow him and worship idols or renounce the church or forsake Christ or burn her Bible, she was to say, I'm sorry, but I must obey God rather than men. That's actually the situation that Peter addresses in his letter in 1 Peter chapter three. You may recall the context. Peter is writing to Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. And he says to these Christian women that they are not to surrender their faith or blindly follow their husbands. They were to stand firm in their personal convictions that Christ is Lord and Savior. And they are to win their husbands over to their faith by the gentle testimony of their lives. And that is what Paul is talking about in verse 11. He's writing in the same spirit. Women are to learn. They are to learn because they are to develop and hold their own convictions about the gospel. Women are invited into the assembly of the gathered church, not just to watch their children, not just to follow their husbands or their parents, but in order to learn. They were to grow in the knowledge of God. They were to study the scriptures for themselves. They were to make their faith in Christ their own as they learned biblical truth and developed their own personal relationship with God that did not depend on anyone else's relationship with God. Women are to learn. We see a beautiful illustration of that in Luke chapter 10. You remember in that passage of scripture, Jesus is spending time with two of his best friends, Martha and Mary. And while Martha is busy bustling about in the kitchen, being distracted by many things that she is trying to do to serve others, there was Mary. And there was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. And she wasn't there with a group of men. No, she wasn't just piggybacking on what Jesus was doing with those who were truly meant to be learning. She was there by herself, receiving a master class about theology and about the truths of scripture from the master himself. That is how much Jesus values women. And that is how much Jesus wants women to learn. Verse 11 adds that women are to learn with a certain disposition. It says, let a woman learn quietly, quietly. Now being quiet is not the same as being silent. Okay, it has less to do with how much you're saying and more to do with how you say it. We, we know that because Paul actually calls all Christians, all Christians, Christian men and Christian women, to be quiet in relation to the government. We saw that in verse two. We pray for the authorities that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And of course, Paul wasn't saying that Christians are not meant to say anything at all. That's not the goal of the Christian life, to be quiet to be silent. And so he's obviously not saying that Christian women are never to speak when they're in church. In fact, if you, if you study what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the nature of the gathered assembly of the church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul actually assumes that women will be praying and even prophesying publicly in the context of corporate worship. And so they were speaking 
as God's people were gathered together. So if quiet does not mean silent, what does it mean? The word quiet refers to a gentle and respectful disposition. The word quiet refers to a a way of relating to others that is not argumentative. It is not easily angered, but instead is patient and calm. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter writes of this when he speaks in 1 Peter chapter three of the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Not a quiet mouth, a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You could say that to live quietly is to not draw attention to yourself. That's what it means to live quietly in relation to the government. We, we are good citizens, and we are living in such a way that the government is not wielding the sword of discipline against us. We, we are seeking to obey and submit to that God-given authority over us. You could say that quietness is actually similar to modesty, which is what Paul was just talking about in the preceding verses. Modest people don't dress to impress, and quiet people don't speak to impress. Neither the modest person or the quiet person desire to draw attention to themselves. Instead, they're like the other Mary, the first Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, when she heard the word of God, the Gospel of Luke tells us that she treasured God's word in her heart. There was a time for her to speak. And what she said is inscripturated for us in the Gospel of Luke. But there was also a time for her to listen quietly as she received the word of God. Paul also says that women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. They're to have this disposition that is gentle and quiet and is also meant to be submissive to the God-given authorities in her life. And in the context of the church, this means that she is to be submissive to God's word and she is to be submissive to God's shepherds, those who are appointed by God to lead the church and to teach the word. Now, we don't like the word submission these days. Perhaps people have never liked the word because our sinful nature makes us rebels at heart. That's the other thing that the garden narrative in Genesis 3 reveals. The, the, at the heart of sin is a desire to do your own will, to be your own God, and to not follow the will of another. We don't want to listen to anyone except ourselves. But the other reason I think why we don't like submission today is because we have seen it so badly abused. Too often we see authority wielded for the sake of self rather than for the sake of others. Those who have it tend to be arrogant. They tend to be entitled. They tend to exalt themselves as being superior, not just in gifting, but in nature. But that says more about those who wield authority than about authority itself. Just because authority can be abused does not mean that authority is evil. When authority is used according to its divine purposes, and it is always given to humanity for the good of others, to further God's purposes, to advance God's plans in the world, then it, submission actually becomes easy. 
Jesus himself demonstrated this by the way that he submitted to his father. You know, Jesus did not come into the world with his own agenda. Instead, you often see him waiting upon his father, waiting for the right time to do what they together had decided. Jesus said, I did not come to do my own will, but my father's will. To learn to submit, therefore, is to become more like Christ. And so women can learn quietly with all submissiveness, knowing that they're not being put in their place, so to speak, but they are being discipled in how to follow Jesus, who submitted with perfect joy and obedience. Now that's the permission. Now we turn to the prohibition and to our second point. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The question here is, what exactly is being prohibited? Is it prohibiting all teaching of men in every single context? Well, if that were the case, then my wife wouldn't be permitted to teach me, and I would be in a whole lot of trouble. This is where we need to remember the context because the context limits how broadly this verse is meant to be applied. It continues to apply today, but it is not meant to be applied beyond its proper context. Remember that Paul wrote these verses with the aim of instructing Timothy on how to rightly order the church. His concern here wasn't all of life. His concern here was the corporate gatherings of the church. It was what you could call worship services, what we're doing today, what we do every Sunday morning. And so when we read verse 12 in this context, we can see that it doesn't apply to many other contexts where women can teach men and even exercise authority over men. Women can exercise authority over men in the workplace. Women can teach men in colleges and universities. Women can even teach men in the church provided that it is the right, appropriate context. And that is actually why we have mixed small groups in our church. We don't put the men in one small group and women in one small group because we're concerned about women saying something that might teach the men. We're okay with men and women being together mutually teaching one another as they have fellowship and as they gather around the word of God. We also believe that men and women can teach one another as they encourage one another through fellowship after our services. We don't keep the men and the women separate in social gatherings, afraid that that women might share something about what God is teaching them and, and therefore teach a man. That's not what this verse is meant to apply to. It is meant to apply to the entire church assembled for worship in this corporate gathering for the purpose of worship and the teaching of God's word. When, when, when teaching and authority are being exercised in this context, it is meant to be exercised by a man. It is meant to be exercised, more specifically, by pastors. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter five. It says both teaching and exercising authority are part of a pastor's job description. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So ruling well being the exercise of authority, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So they exercise authority and they preach and teach. The same two functions that we see in verse 12. 
And so when verse 12 says that women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man, it's, it's saying that women cannot take on the pastoral office, nor can they exercise pastoral functions in the context of the gathered church. They are not to become pastors, and they are not to do the work of pastors when the church is gathered together. Now, I wanna give you two very important qualifications. First, this word teach, used in verse 12, is a special word in the New Testament that refers, listen, it refers to the authoritative transmission of apostolic teaching. It refers to opening up the Bible and proclaiming Christ as the fulfillment and culmination of all of the scriptures. It's, it's what we're doing right now. It's, it's what we do in the sermon on Sunday mornings. Now, sermons are a significant part of Christian teaching, but they are only a part. They are not the whole. For example, we, we teach one another by how we live, we, by our example. We, we, we also teach one another in our everyday conversation and fellowship. We, we teach one another even when we listen to one another pray. Now, none of this is teaching in the technical sense of the word. That's why Paul had no objection in 1 Corinthians 11 to women praying and prophesying in the gathered church. That's why Luke had no objection to Aquila and his wife Priscilla correcting Apollos, teaching him the way of God more accurately, both a man and his wife, teaching another man. The prohibition on teaching does not at all mean that women cannot teach men in any way, shape, or form. There are many biblically faithful ways in which women can teach men in the life of the church. Now what's clear, and we cannot ignore what this verse says, is that women cannot teach men through the authoritative declaration of God's word. They can't be pastors, but neither, let's not forget this, neither can the vast majority of men. This isn't talking about what men can do and what women can't. It's about what certain men, a small, very small minority of men can do that neither the vast majority of men or women can do. The kind of teaching in verse 12 is reserved for pastors because of what's at stake. Sound doctrine. The sound exposition of the Holy Scriptures. It must be reserved for qualified men who have been called and equipped by God to serve the church as pastors. And my second qualification is this. In Titus chapter two, we actually see that God has given women a teaching role in the church. And that is to teach younger women what is good. Specifically in the areas of life relating to the family. Titus 2 verses 3 to 5 say, Older women are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now the word teach there in Titus 2 is actually a different word than teach in verse 12. And that is meant to reflect that Paul is not referring to pastoral teaching in Titus chapter two. But it still involves faithful biblical teaching that is transmitted from one woman to another. And so while we wanna take the prohibition in verse 12 seriously, 
We don't want to over, overextend its application and turn it into something it isn't. It is not an absolute prohibition on all teaching in every context. It is a limited and important prohibition on pastoral teaching when the church is gathered together. Now, the question remains, and this is of fundamental importance. Why doesn't God want women to be pastors? And that leads to our third point, the reason for the prohibition. The answer to this question is essential to how we apply verse 12 today. Because if our answer, like it is for some who reject what my interpretation and what the historic interpretation of this text has been, what what they do is they say, well, the answer is that women couldn't teach in that context because they were uneducated. It wasn't a fair intellectual playing field. And therefore, they weren't equipped to teach. And so the remedy is, if women just get sufficiently educated, then of course they can teach. The problem with that interpretation, of course, is that Paul could easily have said, I do not permit a woman to teach because she has not been educated or because she has not learned the ways of God or the truths of God accurately. That's not what he says. Or some people might say, well, the reason why women can't teach is because they were all too vain and they were obsessed with their good looks, which of course is the context. They didn't have the requisite character to serve in the pastoral role. And so the remedy would be, well, just make sure women become godly and they are qualified not only by gifting, but by character and they can serve in this role. Well, the real answer The text itself tells us the reason for the the prohibition in verse 13. And verse 13 shows us that this prohibition is not grounded in the historic or cultural context of the day, but in the creation order itself. It says, for, for, that word's there saying, this is the reason, it's a because. The reason why women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man because Adam was formed first, then Eve. What What, what is he saying? Well, Paul, of course, is referring to Genesis chapter two, right? Where God formed the man first from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then subsequently, he created the woman out of the man and presents her to him as a helper fit for him. Now, as we have talked about in our recent series on marriage, the immediate application of this is that men have been called by God, created by God to lead their wives in the home. God created the woman from the man and for the man to be his uniquely qualified helper. And by helper, we don't mean in the domestic sense per se, but we mean in every capacity to help him to follow God and to trust him. What Paul does in verse 13 is he shows us that that this created order doesn't just apply to the family, it applies to the church. Just as men are to lead in the home, so also they are to lead in the church. This is God's design for our households and it is his design for his household, which is the church. You can picture God like a father handing out responsibilities to his children. He does so wisely because he knows them well and he does it lovingly because he wants their best. 
If you're a parent, you can relate to me when I say there are so many things about our children that we cannot control. And there are so many things about our children that we do not know because we didn't design them. In some ways, parenting is the process of getting to know your children. You shape them to some extent, but, but to another extent, you're just learning how God has created them. You don't give them their personalities. You don't determine whether they're introverts or extroverts. You don't tell them what they must be passionate about because we didn't design them. But God did. And God designed all of us. He designed every part of our being. He knows us because he made every little detail that characterizes us. And it is out of this knowledge that God gives us our roles. Men and women weren't created to be clones of one another, just different looking versions of the same thing. Yes, we are both made in the image of God. We both reflect the glory of God in unique, distinct, complementary ways. But equality in dignity does not equate to an identity in role, to, to, uh, to, to making the roles exactly the same. We were created to be complements of one another, two different but complementary pieces that fit together to make something better. And in the church, this is reflected by God reserving the pastoral office for men. Paul gives a second reason for the prohibition in verse 14. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What Paul is doing now is he's turning our minds from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, where Eve is deceived by the serpent. And his point here isn't that women are more gullible than men, and therefore they cannot serve as pastors. His point here, listen, his point here is that devastating things happen when the created order is overturned. And that is what happened in Genesis 3, where Satan, in the form of a serpent, and therefore reflecting the animal world, approached the helper, Eve, rather than the head, Adam. He, he targeted her rather than him as an insult to what God had created very good. The man was meant to be first as the leader of his home, followed by his wife, and then the serpent. But here we see the creature approaching the wife and ignoring the man. And then when Adam and Eve sin and they fall into sin, God enters the scene and what we see is he, he doesn't follow Satan's pattern. He follows his own. He, he speaks to the man first. Remember? Where are you? He calls to Adam. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And he says, well, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. And then God addresses the woman. He says, what have you done? And she says, well, the serpent, the serpent made me do it. And then God addresses the serpent with the first curse. The man, the woman, the animal. God was reestablishing the inherent goodness and the enduring validity of his created order. God created men to lead in the home and in the church. And verse 14 tells us that we ignore this order at our own peril. This doesn't mean that men always get leadership right. In fact, we often get it wrong because we are sinners. 
And our only hope of godly leadership is that God would give us grace to be humble. But this does mean that when sin is put to death, when sin is weeded out of the heart of a man and replaced with the fear of the Lord in a humble mind, God's people will flourish under their servant-hearted leadership. Paul ends this set of instructions in verse 15. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now let me just say up front, most people don't know exactly what this verse means. I listened to four different sermons on this text and there were four different understandings and applications. They were similar, they were related, but there's very little consensus on what exactly this means. And so we wanna approach this verse with a requisite degree of of humility and questioning of, of, Lord, what what do you wanna say here? I wanna understand it and I wanna apply it as you originally wanted this to be communicated. And by the way, God gives us verses like that so that we wouldn't ever feel like we've arrived to a full knowledge of his, the mystery of God's will revealed to us in his word. We are meant to study. We are meant to learn. We're meant to dig and wrestle with a text as we pursue truth, as we pursue the wisdom of God. Now, one interpretation of this verse is that childbearing here refers to the child of Eve, to the one child prophesied in Genesis 3 who would bruise and crush the head of the serpent, the child, of course, we know to be Jesus Christ. She will be saved through the childbearing of Eve, the promised offspring, because Christ alone gives women hope for salvation if indeed they display the the fruits of their salvation, which are faith, love, holiness, and self-control. That's a possible interpretation I don't think it's the best one. I think a better interpretation is to see saved here, not in the absolute sense of saved from the judgment of God, saved from the penalty of sin, but in the progressive sense of being saved from the power of sin. Did you know that? That the Bible teaches that salvation is something we already have. Christians already have salvation, and yet it is also something that we increasingly have every single day. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then in chapter 15, I remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Christians are already saved from the penalty of sin. And we are also being saved from the power of sin because sin still has an effect on us a powerful effect on us. We, we, we do what we don't wanna do. Even when we want to do what is right, evil is right there, close at hand. Romans chapter seven. And so when verse 15 is understood in this sense, we see that Paul is speaking about the sanctifying power of motherhood. The sanctifying power of motherhood. Women may struggle with vanity. They may struggle with the desire for power and authority, but it is motherhood. Motherhood, whether biological motherhood or spiritual motherhood, the the nurturing of another for the good of that person, for the glory of God, that is what humbles a woman and frees her from the power of sin. 
when a woman embraces this God-given role, that is when she rediscovers the identity that God created her to have. It's not to be loud and bombastic and argumentative. It's to be quiet and rich in good works. It's to be characterized by faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, I can only imagine what you may be thinking right now. I encourage you, if you're struggling with the implications of this text, if they seem manifestly unjust to you, I encourage you to look at what the Bible as a whole teaches about what it means to be a woman because it goes far beyond what is captured in these verses. That's actually one of the reasons why I asked Ed Graham to read Proverbs 31 earlier in our service. It paints a picture of a woman who is strong, who is confident, who is courageous, a woman who takes initiative in her home, a woman who is fully trusted by her husband, a woman who is praised by her children for how she cares for her family and for others. She is known throughout the city for her good works and she is praised for it. But most importantly, Proverbs 31 teaches us that she is a woman who fears the Lord. She lives in reverent awe of her creator and in grateful submission to her redeemer. That's the only way that we can rediscover our true identity. The only way to discover your true purpose in life is by living in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so wherever you are in life, whatever background you come from, I invite you to consider what God says about who we are and who we were meant to be. You may be surprised by what the Bible teaches, but I promise you that if you come to believe the teachings of God's word for yourself, you will discover a freedom that you've never had and a peace that the world could never offer. Finally, for my fellow Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my co-members in God's household, I wanna encourage you to not only tolerate texts like these, to kind of hold your nose as we approach controversy in the Bible, not just to tolerate these texts, but to embrace them, to love what they teach, to come to a point where you say, I love this, I love these truths, because God's will is meant to be embraced and celebrated. Romans 12 says that as our minds are renewed, we discern what is the good and perfect will of God. We acknowledge the will of God as being far superior than the ways of the world. And that's not gonna be easy because we are all breathing the air of our culture and we are processing that air through sinful hearts. Holding these views will not make you popular. I mean, who dares to say there are some things that women aren't meant to do. Well, that's precisely what the scriptures have said to us today. Listen, if there are any parts in the Bible that we need to pay more close attention to, it's the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Because those are the very parts that reveal how we have come to believe the teachings of the world rather than the teachings of God. Conformity to the world means nothing. The ways of the wicked will perish. 
like chaff blowing in the wind. But the one who fears the Lord, the one who is faithful to God's will, will endure forever. So let us all learn to embrace and celebrate God's will for our lives and for his church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths and realities that your word reveals, that these aren't just propositions existing in the areas of our minds, but they are realities meant to be reflected in how we do life and how we approach what it means to be a man and to be a woman. We pray, Father, for grace to submit to this and to embrace it, to rejoice in the will of God for our lives and for your church. And we pray, Father, I pray that you would raise up women in our church who would be characterized by quietness, by a commitment to good works, who are gifted with teaching, who would be able to teach others in the ways that you have ordained, in the ways that you have set for them to bring glory to your name. And I pray that they would do that with a contentment and a beauty that the world knows nothing of. And we pray for our church that you would help us all to be faithful to the word of God, that we would learn to embrace your will for the church. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen.